Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, legal analyst Paige Pate weighs in on a lawsuit filed by the state of Texas against Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. But first, this... Georgia Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey says the state could have access to several hundred thousand doses of a COVID-19 vaccine in the coming weeks. That is, if a vaccine receives emergency approval from the FDA. Dr. Toomey told reporters Tuesday she hopes to instill trust in a COVID-19 vaccine by publicly taking the shot herself. I can't emphasize enough how confident I am that this vaccine is safe. No question it's effective. It will be a game changer for us in Georgia. A vaccine is expected to be widely available to the public by next summer. This comes at a time when Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says he has, quote, grave concerns about the state of the COVID-19 pandemic here in Georgia. Now, Governor Kemp urged Georgians to continue to wear masks and stay distant from those outside one's immediate household. We have lost too many loved ones, too many businesses have gone under, and too many families have literally lost it all. We all must do our part so that the sacrifices that everyone has made will not be done in vain. Now, Governor Kemp continues to not commit to putting stronger statewide rules in place. Recently, the number of newly confirmed COVID-19 cases in Georgia has grown to levels not experienced since late summer. At the time of this broadcast, 452,369 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. 36,461 have been hospitalized. And of those, these were considered ICU admissions, 6,719. And since the state began recording these numbers in March, now we've reached 9,027 deaths that have been confirmed. This is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. In related news, more than 60 organizations are calling Senators Kelly Leffler and David Perdue to give Georgians some additional COVID-19 relief. In a letter dated today, nonprofit and philanthropic leaders asked the senators to approve increases to SNAP benefits, additional unemployment benefits, more aid to local governments, and emergency rental aid. Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta, the Buckhead Christian Ministry, the Jewish Community Relations Council, and the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute were among the organizations who signed the letter. Now, the U.S. House is expected to pass a bill to give lawmakers more time to decide on current COVID-19 relief negotiations. Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said Congress will not adjourn without agreeing on some sort of relief package. And as mentioned, the state of Texas is suing Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. In a 154-page filing, Texas is alleging, quote, 
the 2020 election suffered from significant and unconstitutional irregularities in the defendant states. Close quote. We'll go over some of those in a moment. The other lawsuits filed by the Trump campaign have gone nowhere in the courts. Might this lawsuit be different? Probably not. But let's ask WABE legal analyst Paige Pate. Paige, good to talk to you again. Welcome. Thank you, Rose. Great to be with you. Let me just begin with getting your overall thoughts on yet another lawsuit alleging President-elect Joe Biden's win in Georgia and now other states is somehow invalid due to fraud. Well, Rose, I think this particular lawsuit is especially stunning given how frivolous not only the claims are, but also the idea that this is a proper lawsuit for the Supreme Court. It is true that the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction over lawsuits between states, Mm -hmm. but that jurisdiction is supposed to cover controversies like our water wars that we're having with Alabama and Florida, situations where one state has a very specific disagreement with one other state. Uh, It is not uh, the type of case uh, that we have here And the Supreme Court is unlikely, in my opinion, to accept it and to listen to the claims that Texas wants them to consider. And let's walk this through for our listeners who may not understand how this process works. So they filed this lawsuit within the nation's high court here. They don't even have to agree to hear this or even accept it. What's that process like? Uh, That's a great point, Rose, and there's a lot of misinformation, I think, right now out on social media and in other places, like there often is, um, especially with legal issues relating to this election. Um, In a case where one state is suing another state or several other states, they first have to file a motion for leave to file the complaint. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're asking the Supreme Court to give them permission to file the lawsuit and then to start the process of actually considering whether these claims have any merit. Under the Supreme Court rules, five justices have to agree to accept a lawsuit like this. Um, Texas has also asked, in addition to being able to file the lawsuit, that the Supreme Court step in and immediately issue an injunction preventing any of these states from further certifying the results uh, or seating an, an electoral Um, vote to submit to Congress. So the Supreme Court has apparently asked the defendant states, as Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, to respond to this request by Texas by three o'clock tomorrow. And then at that point, the Supreme Court will caucus, they'll conference about the case and decide whether they're going to take it, which would be the first step towards the case actually being heard. Page. Given the makeup of the court and then the recent appointee, is it possible if the justices lean with their ideologies, which they're not supposed to, but that's a whole nother segment, would it be a surprise if they do accept the filing? Yes. To me, and I think to a lot of lawyers who watch the Supreme Court, even with uh, the fact that it, it is now clearly a, a more conservative court uh, since, since Trump took office, This is the type of case that just doesn't make it. Uh, It doesn't meet the requirements for an original jurisdiction lawsuit in front of the Supreme Court. Now, having said that, Mm -hmm. there are at least a couple of justices who seem to believe, based on their prior opinions, 
that any disagreement between states should be brought to the Supreme Court. That's Justice Thomas and occasionally Justice Alito. Is it possible that Justice Barrett would join that group, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Gorsuch? We don't know because they haven't been presented with a case like this. They've never been presented with a case like (laughs) this. Um, So it's uncertain. But at the end of the day, while they may get a couple of votes from those justices, I do not expect them to get five votes to allow the case to proceed. But the justices would look at in this motion for leave that Texas has filed, that they would look at the claims of factors that Texas is raising in terms of these, quote, unconstitutional irregularities, which vary from issues with the ballot and signatures to questions about some of the laws and the 14th Amendment. They are going to consider that. They would have to consider all of those factors that Texas has... I don't think so. And here's why. I mean, the threshold question is, do they even have jurisdiction to consider this case? And one of the primary issues there is, is this a dispute that can be heard better in some other court? And we already know that state courts and federal district courts have been considering the exact allegations of fraud and whatever else they put in this complaint in other cases. So the Supreme Court could decide, we're not even gonna get to these claims about um, you know, election fraud or ballot stuffing or you know, improper procedures to allow more people to vote, which seems crazy on its face. We're not even gonna get to that because as a court, we can decide that Texas just hasn't even made that first obstacle. They, they haven't gotten past that first level of showing that this is a case that's properly before the Supreme Court. Let me ask you this. A listener may say, okay, well, Paige Pate, how is this different from 2000 and Gore versus Bush? And the Supreme Court weighed in on that. Well, as far as the claims, it's very different because mm-hmm. in that situation, it was an issue. It was a purely a state law election issue relating to Florida, one state. And the claim had already been litigated in the state courts and was being appealed to the Supreme Court simply to determine if there was any constitutional error or violation of federal law. The issue had already been litigated. The Supreme Court hates to be the first court to hear claims. They like cases to kind of percolate up through the system so that there's a record established, facts have been found, and they can rely on that to rule on a narrow legal issue. So it's a very different type of claim with very different parties involved. The way it's similar is it seems to be a purely political question for the court. And I do believe um, that Bush v. Gore became a political case for the Supreme Court. And I think the way they voted um, shows that they were at least considering the case along ideological lines. So there is the concern that that may happen here. But I just think the case that's being brought by Texas is so far outside um, the normal Supreme Court case that it's just not going to get to the point where the justices have to argue about the merits. Now, Closer Look did reach out to Georgia's attorney general, Chris Carr, did decline to come on the program, but he did send a statement. I'm quoting here. With all due respect, the Texas attorney general is constitutionally, legally and factually wrong about Georgia. We will have to see what the court decides to do and give our legal team a chance to determine the best next course of action. Well, you agree with that, Paige? 
I do, and I don't often agree with Chris Carr, but he's absolutely right. It, it's legally wrong. It's factually wrong. Uh, it's flat out crazy. I, that's not a legal opinion. That's just a. You, know, <laughs> you wouldn't be the first attorney to say, you know what? That's crazy. It, it's just, it, it, but it is, um, and, and it's good to see. I think that our attorney general uh, is going to do his job and defend the state of Georgia in this case, as he should. And he's kind of lining up, I think, behind our Secretary of State and the career people who work in his office who have done, I think, a very fair and competent job of running this election. And I am certain it has been difficult for them and will continue to be difficult for them as they get so much pressure from other Republican officials, uh, even including the White House. We shall see. Paige, before I let you go, I want to get your thoughts on this because there are other media reports. It is expected that President-elect Joe Biden will choose from either outgoing Alabama Senator Doug Jones or Judge Merrick Garland of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Of course, he was President Obama's Supreme Court pick back in 2016. And Sally Yates, someone you know, a former Deputy Attorney General. He might choose from one of those three, but you never know. Uh, Your thoughts on who you think, either by name or the type of person, that President-elect Biden will choose for this position? Well, I think it's very clear that unlike President Trump, Um, President-elect Biden is going to try to ensure that the Justice Department is independent from the White House. And I think all of the names that have been mentioned for that position of attorney general would be the type of attorney general who would keep politics out of law enforcement decisions, prosecutorial decisions. That's not what we've seen recently, but that is traditionally the way the Department of Justice is run. Uh, Sally Yates would do a great job. She's obviously been uh, working with the Department of Justice for most of her career. She knows how to run that office. But I I suppose I could see the argument that she was so closely aligned to a lot of the things that happened during the Obama administration at the very end. And then when Trump came into office about the Russia investigation, Jim Comey, that perhaps the Biden team is saying, let's get a fresh start over there at Justice. Uh, Merrick Garland has certainly the demeanor and experience. Uh, Doug Jones has the prosecutorial background. Uh, I don't see any downside as far as being able to do the job for any of those candidates. Um, But if you want somebody who's going to be the most aggressive about pursuing um, federal criminal violations across the country, Doug Jones probably has the better background for that and Mm -hmm. now understands Washington by being a a United States senator for a period of time that the other individuals probably don't. WABE legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Paige Pate. Paige, as always, thanks for the conversation. Thanks for taking the time. Happy holidays. Do I need to say go dogs? Because I usually say that. Uh, Absolutely. Any (laughs) go dogs is appreciated, especially these days. (laughs) Paige is a big, big fan of the Georgia Bulldogs, as well as my producer grace walker i'm just gonna say this to bark rose i'm not gonna bark no, you don't have to bark but georgia plays missouri this weekend my home state so i'm gonna say this go mizzou okay all right <laughs> go all the way home mizzou all right Paige. thanks so much i appreciate you taking the time thank you support for wabe comes from the community foundation for greater atlanta If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org.
You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It was the most economically distressed time in our nation's history since the Great Depression. It's what we call this coronavirus pandemic. There was no how-to template for our government. Here's President Donald Trump back on March 13th addressing the nation from the Rose Garden. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. But what was clear is this. There needed to be a public health and economic response to all of this. Now, what would come later, of course, with bipartisan support was the passing of the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Legislation, or CARES Act. President Trump actually signed it into law on March 27th. Well, a lot has changed then. Now the nation is looking at about 15 million who have tested positive for the coronavirus, and the number of deaths continues to increase. And along with that, also the need from health care to housing to employment to food and so much more. It would seem fitting that the United Way of Greater Atlanta would be among the many agencies and organizations trying to help. So as we resume our conversations with area leaders during this pandemic, Joining me now to talk about what's been working and the challenges that still exist in providing relief. Let's welcome longtime president and CEO of the United Way of Greater Atlanta, Milton Little. Good to have you back. It's been some time. Thanks for taking the time. It has been a minute, Rose. I think all of us have been a little bit busy. Yeah, let's begin there. I think I've asked this question about 112 times, but how do you sum up this year, Milton Little? Uh, I would sum it up as the most challenging, certainly I've ever had in my professional career, but I think this is a, a year that has has taken a toll on every person uh, imaginable. Mm-hmm. You know, in past uh, disasters, some people have uh, just been able to sort of skate by without uh, any uh, touch, mm-hmm. but all of us have been touched by the pandemic in one shape or uh, another. Well, let's talk about your organization. Uh, how have how have the United Way of Greater Atlanta employees and the many departments that you have, how have y'all been faring through all of this? As a nonprofit organization, we have fared like other nonprofits. Uh, we've seen fundraising change dramatically. Uh, we rely on a workplace campaign for mm-hmm. Uh, upwards of 60% of our annual uh, funding. Many of the companies that support us have uh, have shut things down, uh, have had to change their um, timetable for any fundraising they may do for United Way. We've seen massive layoffs and uh, and furloughs in, in a number of companies. And so our uh, fundraising has been impacted just as other nonprofits. Uh, at the same time, we have seen more demands for what we do uh, than ever before. So it's that that strange conundrum of uh, at the moment when your fundraising is most challenged, uh, that's when people need your services uh, 
Have you all had to furlough employees or have you had any layoffs? Uh, unfortunately, um, we lost about 30 positions uh, at the beginning of this um, fiscal year. Our fiscal year runs from July 1st to June 30th. We did a lot of intelligence gathering in the spring um, to assess what our fundraising was going to look like. And the numbers told us uh, that uh, we would need to make some significant uh, headcount reductions in order for our expenses to uh, be in line with the anticipated revenues for the year. Will you be able to bring those positions back or they are definitely gone? Well, it all, all of it depends on what the fundraising does. Uh, if we're fortunate enough and see uh, that we uh, are better than uh, our predictions, um, we'll make some decisions about what that means for us in terms of operational expense. If we're lucky, we'll be able to bring some people back. Mm -hmm. um, now it's too soon to tell. Well, did the United Way of Greater Atlanta receive any funding from the CARES Act solely for operations that was different from funding to continue your services? Yeah, well, the, uh, the PPP uh, funds that we did get were for uh, operations, mm -hmm. um, the services that we provide, but for operations. And, and they were the same rules that applied uh, to other uh, organizations for profit or nonprofit. So those dollars were uh, available to us to uh, hold on to headcount and to meet some other uh, operational expenses. Um, but at the point that those dollars could no longer uh, support us, mm -hmm. after they were expended, we had to, um, again, um, make sure our expenses were in line with our revenue. Mr. Little, what's your annual operating budget? Curious. Uh, our annual operating budget's about $16 million, mm -hmm. you know, on, a, on an annual revenue of about $100 million. Now, did you all receive funding through the CARES Act to continue support and relief services as well? So what we have is a contract with the city of Atlanta okay. for a very specific uh, set of activities related to um, CARES, mm -hmm. uh, and that is housing eviction um, support. Uh, we also are doing some things in Gwinnett um, with some similar kinds of, of money. So um, that's what we have gotten from mm -hmm. uh, through the federal government uh, by way of City of Atlanta contract. Did the state kick anything in? Not directly to United Way, but we have been involved in um, projects around homelessness and other mm -hmm. supports uh, where um, state money uh, has uh, has been provided. So I want to go back to March and April then because I imagine you all did see a strong need from the community, obviously, and I'm imagining it was around housing. Were there any other quality of life areas that you all saw a strong need from the community needing assistance? Oh, absolutely. You know, immediately when um, um, things began to shut down, we launched a uh, COVID-19 Response and Recovery Fund with the Community Foundation of Atlanta, and were successful in raising about $25 million uh, for that, uh, for, to be able to make investments across a range of issues. You mentioned housing as one. Um, food insecurity was probably the first thing that became apparent. I think all of us just need to go back to newspaper headlines and news stories and visuals of mm -hmm. people on... Um, food bank lines, 
And so a significant portion of the money was spent on uh, food insecurity and, and partners with Atlanta Community Food Bank and other uh, organizations. We also were investing in um, education mm-hmm. because it's easy to say we're closing the schools and everybody's got to go online. Uh, but what is the case across greater Atlanta in too many situations is that people lacked access to either the hardware or the high speed uh, interactivity that was required for the online learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we had to make some investments in, uh, to, in those areas to support uh, young people so that they could continue their ed- education. And there were a range of other issues related to emergency financial assistance and a, and a range of, uh, of other topics. So housing, food insecurity, education. And I want to get for clarity for our listeners, because when we hear United Way of Greater Atlanta, define the boundaries you all are able to provide support for. So our United Way covers 13 counties mm-hmm. uh, across Metro and so we're going up north to, to Cherokee, we're going out west to Douglas, we're going out east, uh, Rockdale, we're south in Butts and uh, Fayette and, and that corridor down there. So roughly half the state's population is in the 13 counties that mm-hmm. we cover. So curious, Mr. Little, because when we talk about providing the support and resources and with, through your partners, was this a situation where United Way was just providing most of the funding? Break that down for our listeners. We work through uh, organizations. Um, so on the one hand, um, in as I said, in partnership with Community Foundation, we raised the money. We had an advisory committee that um, made decisions on what the priorities were for the funding and who the organizations would were that would receive the money. And so we would make a grant to, for instance, Mm -hmm. uh, who had come to us with a proposal that said they were going to buy uh, Chromebooks and they were going to provide uh, internet hotspots um, for uh, digital learning. Uh, And that's how we work. We work through organizations. We don't purchase the stuff ourselves. So because now comes Mm -hmm. news reports about this $22 million dollars that was allocated for housing assistance that was to be administered by the United Way of Greater Atlanta, correct? I want to make sure that's correct? Correct. Yep. And so now now the reports are there's been a challenge to distribute these funds. What happened here? So, you know, it's, uh, number one, we have spent um, a significant portion of that money. We now have about 2,100 people in the pipeline. So I think at the end of the day, uh, we'll spend uh, more money than uh, than we had uh, uh, told the city uh, a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. um, if uh, the city would allow us to uh, expend additional uh, funds. So here's what happened. Number one, you had um, certainly a need, but you also had the moratorium. Mm-hmm. You had the CD moratorium, you had other moratorium, and so... We've, we have learned that many people confused moratorium meaning with the idea that their uh, mortgage and rent was being forgiven. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't have a sense of urgency to come forward. And so 
That was a, uh, a hurdle that we've had to deal with. A second hurdle was because of the pandemic and because of social distancing, um, it was not clear whether we'd be able to uh, put together face-to-face -face events so that you could have people come in uh, and register for the program. So we launched an online um, strategy. Mm -hmm. And I think that worked up to a point where we then began to encounter the digital divide with so many folks that didn't have access to the same kinds of things that I talked about related to digital learning. We would have required people to uh, load a, a copy of their lease on, on an online portal through their cell phone. Mm -hmm. And so we began to realize very quickly that we had to have a face-to-face -face strategy. So we ended up doing over a hundred face-to-face um, -face, um, meetings in, in um, at the Louder Milk Center on the United Way campus, mm -hmm. at individual apartment complexes where the numbers of people uh, who were at risk of eviction was pretty high. Uh, and so that helped turn things around. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a tremendous surge uh, in applications. And I think it's also been helped, Rose, by the fact that more and more people now know that the deadline is December 30th. Mm -hmm. uh, and got the combination of the moratoriums being lifted, the deadline uh, fast approaching, and the effectiveness of our outreach efforts that I think is all now leading to a pretty, pretty significant uh, number of uh, households to add to the already almost 4,000 that we had served uh, up through uh, early November. So you all have been in communication with the city of Atlanta because the reports were because this money was not being utilized, it was going to go back to the city to be used in other areas. So you all have been clear to them there still is a need so that all of that $22 million will still be used. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, but let, let me correct what you said. Mm -hmm. uh, so already uh, 8000 excuse me, $8 million has already been spent. Okay. Uh, since uh, the end of August. So, you know, think about that. 3,000 households helped in uh, just a couple of months. So it wasn't a case that the money was not being spent. Um, we have now, as I said, 2,100 people in the pipeline. So we anticipate being able to spend no less than $11 million and potentially uh, as much as uh, 14 of the 22. Okay, so it is clear then that, just want to be clear because, you know, you read reports just like I do. Uh, mm -hmm. It is clear that the Atlanta City Council is not going to, is going to make sure that that, or at least to your knowledge, you believe that the Atlanta City Council will make sure that that money, whatever's remaining, will not go towards, as I believe the AJC put it, plugging other holes in the city's budget. Because well, you I all were, you all were, entrusted with administering this so shouldn't you be allowed to continue it till the end of the year which is the deadline right so so here are here are the the challenges number one um the money's got to be um spent by december 30th mm -hmm. it's it would be it was deemed by us to be a responsible act to tell them uh, as quickly as possible, how much we thought we could spend 
and if there was money that would be unspent mm -hmm. to the city to redeploy that to other COVID related, COVID eligible um, activities. And so it didn't, we could not go until December 28th mm -hmm. uh, and then come back to the city and say, oh, by the way, um, there's money left over here. Okay. So we decided um, after a lot of consultation with city officials to give them a conservative estimate in early no in early November of what we thought uh, the numbers would look like, mm. and always told them that there's a possibility that we could spend more, but we want to be real conservative so that you have at least adequate time to make some decisions about what your redeployment strategy might be. So y'all can still help folks, correct? We could, we could. And the city, the city council will uh, make some decisions about um, how much uh, we may get uh, of the money that we thought we might have to turn back. Have you been in contact with them? You have friends yes, over there. Yes, we have. Okay. Yes, we have. We've been meeting with city council um, pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I had two meetings with them last week. You know, Mr. Little, as we head into 2021, health experts warn, obviously, with the new coronavirus cases and increase in deaths and all those other lingering effects, that this nation is headed for some some tough times. What concerns do you have for United Way of Greater Atlanta and your ability to keep not only providing supports that's desperately needed, but also for the operations of your own organization? Well, I have a couple of of concerns and that that are not not going to be different than any other nonprofit leader uh, in the community um, many smart people believe that the real um, challenge that any of us are going to have from a fundraising perspective is going to come uh, in the year 21 mm. um, as difficult as things were in 2020 um, that the, the real effect is going to be in 2021. Mm -hmm. So um, if that is true, um, it's going to be another case where we've got that intersection of a high demand for the kinds of services that we support through the agencies as a result of our fundraising and the fact that our fundraising is challenged. Mm. Uh, that's probably one of the biggest issues. Second, we have seen unabated um, the food insecurity issue across greater Atlanta that I think is going to continue. And the, th the third thing that I worry about is mental health. Mm. Um, we have seen tremendous evidence of community stress, family stress, and individual stress uh, being suffered as a result of the pandemic. Uh, when you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you don't know if you're going to be able to keep the roof over your head, you don't know if every cough that you have is evidence that you've caught the virus. Mm -hmm. uh, and so all of these things, Rose, are, are compounding, um, particularly in communities that have been most disproportionately impacted by COVID. So I just say two things, and I say them all the time. Number one, um, the vaccine's not going to solve for some of these issues that I just described. And number two, in our rush to get back to normal, 
we can't go back to the old levels of food insecurity, economic insecurity, housing insecurity. We've got an opportunity to create a new Atlanta uh, based on what the pandemic has revealed and we ought to be serious and intentional about um, bringing a lens of equity and social justice to, uh, to the rebuilding of Atlanta. I hear so many folks in leadership positions say that, what you've just said. And I want to be very clear and fair, too, because I've had so many conversations. There are a lot of organizations here in the Atlanta area that are doing some wonderful things, trying to do some wonderful, wonderful things to help people. But it does take partnerships. It does take federal, state, local. It's going, you can't end homelessness with just one organization. It takes a collaboration as you've been talking about. Yep. When you assess what the Atlanta philanthropic community and the business community and the grassroots organizations, uh, when you assess the ability for all of these organizations to come together, um, do you think that so much more could be done or is it always just too much either red tape or logistics or whatever that's preventing mm -hmm. uh, greater collaborations and greater partnerships. This is 2020. You headed up United Way of Greater Atlanta, what, 2007? Yeah, 13 years. Yeah. Same year I started here. So see, now look where we are. Okay. Look where we are. <laughs> yeah. In the same chairs, right? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so there have been you some know, great achievements, but I always, I always hear people saying the same thing. There's so much more to do. But there needs to be more collaborations and partnerships and maybe people's egos set aside and, you know, all that stuff. What's your response all, to that? All, all of those things, um, you know, I, I think are, are true. Um, but what's most true for me right now in this moment is the level of collaboration we've seen uh, during this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Philanthropies come together in, in partnership. Uh, we've seen nonprofit organizations collaborating in, in new ways. Um, you know, at United Way, we say that United is the way forward. Mm -hmm. and that speaks to this notion that there's no one organization, no one individual that's going to be able to make the change that all of us uh, need to see. Yes, there have been, uh, been hurdles uh, around collaboration. When I first started my career, uh, I heard somebody say collaboration um, among nonprofits was an unnatural act between non-consenting adults. We've got to we've got to get past that definition of collaboration. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, I, but it but it speaks to all the things that you talked about. Yeah, ego and competition, uh, and and a host of other things, and and I think there's. There's just more work than any of us can do alone. Mm -hmm. And it's so much we are able to do when we do it to come together. And I think that this pandemic's, if one of the lingering effects is going to be that we've learned that we can work with one another and not sacrifice our mission, not sacrifice our donors, and not sacrifice our impact. And I think I hope that lesson is one that we hold on to. Milton Little. Longtime president and CEO of the United Way of Greater Atlanta. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for the services you all are providing to those in need. Um, perhaps next time we talk, we'll have a <laughs> different type of conversation, huh? Maybe we'll be back in your studio. 
Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? It's, 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 wouldn't uh, that be nice? Yeah. Exactly. Thank you to my longtime friend and host of, uh, <laughs> of this important show. You make a difference in the community, and thanks for the opportunity to share what we're trying to do with your uh, listeners. Thank you so much. Take care now. All right. See you soon. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. and listen whenever you want because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.